All right, Power Athlete Nation, before we get into this episode, we got a word from our sponsors. John, what do you got? I want to give a shout out to Steve's, who makes some of the best beef jerky I've had in recent years. As you know, I'm a big jerky snob, and this stuff is good. What I like about it is how simple it is. As I've always said, the best beef jerky is usually the simplest beef jerky, and simple and easy. As I can attest, the big beef jerky brands use sugar, fillers, and subpar ingredients to cut corners and lower the price point so they can sell at a premium, but not Steve's. He uses the highest quality beef jerky with zero sugar, a few carbs, and a simple recipe based on natural ingredients, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. On top of having some badass jerky, Steve is also a family-owned business in South Jersey. He started with a simple obsession, make the best portable protein snacks on the market. And Steve is also a power athlete himself and follows the grindstone program. So I love their tagline. When you're at the top of the food chain, eat like it. If you guys want to give it a try, he's throwing us out a 20% discount code. So use power athlete 20 on your first order and see exactly how good this stuff is. Dude. So, uh, this is an interesting time in our country and really just an interesting time. And, uh, as we were sitting around and obviously I saw this whole thing bust out with Afghanistan. So, um, you know, Tex and I were rapping a little about it and he's like, you know, we should, we should do a podcast or at least, you know, talk a little bit about it. And I was like, you know, the only person I want to talk to is Andy about it just cause I know not only, uh, you spend a lot of time there and understand it in terms of uh, you know, a unique perspective in terms of boots in the ground and also looking at it from other directions. And, um, I know I have my own personal, you know, feelings about it and I've been reading a ton of stuff and it's really, really interesting to see how polarized. And then of course, like it is in every opportunity in this country, now it's become some political divide and now it's, you know, one side or the other and whatnot. And just wanted to get your take on it. At least have a intelligent conversation. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, it's a complex issue. I think most people are trying to view something incredibly complex through a pinhole um, with an attention span of a gnat. And they basically it it devolves into rhetoric without much understanding. I agree with you. It's, you know, it's now just pointing fingers and, you know, it's this person's fault or that person's fault, which I don't know if there would be a a greater oversimplification of that country in general. Um, I mean, the biggest thing I think it's important to understand for people is that, you know, military veterans are not necessarily an expert on geopolitical, any activity going on in the world to include Afghanistan. So for like myself, I mean, I could tell you about the topography and geography, you know, the different provinces, what they look like, the weather patterns. I could tell you about, some of the culture I could tell you about the the partner forces that we worked with. I could tell you about the people, but as far as a, you know, like a deep level of understanding of the overall strategic level of war and the planning that went into it. I mean, I obviously wasn't sitting around the tables when those that make policy back in 2001, you know, for the initial surge to Afghanistan, nor was I at the tables or involved in it when they were having the conversations about leaving. So my first thing when it comes to talking about Afghanistan is I would give people a, a serious word of of caution about listening directly to what veterans say about Afghanistan because they're just not experts. Sure. Um, a lot of them will try to come off as if they are an expert, and they're probably an expert at what they did when they were overseas. But again, I don't remember ever going through a course uh, course on geopolitics. You know, they'd say, "Hey, read," you know, 
Three Cups of Tea, which you come to find out later on is a total bullshit book that was basically made up by the author. And they try to give you some level of the understanding inside of the country. But just just be cautious for people listening where you get your information from and how much weight you put into it. I really don't give a fuck what uniform you wore or what you did with your boots on the ground. It, it just doesn't make you an expert. So having said that, I mean, I'm not surprised by what's happening in Afghanistan. And my personal thoughts on it are I do agree that we should be leaving should have left that country if i was king for a day we probably would have done it 10 years ago but i think I mean, if we had done it 10 i think didn't we just get kicked down the road i mean I'm, i mean and you you said it 10 yeah. years ago i mean uh obama kicked this can trump kicked this can uh unfortunately Everybody biden, kicked the can. Yeah. well and that's one of the things people are like this is biden's fault and i just i wish people understood how how childish it is to say that and how myopic it is to say that and how little contact like if you really think that a guy who has been in office for what is it now six months is responsible for the the single-handedly for the drawdown of a 20-year engagement in a country then i think you should be limited to you know 1990s dial-up internet right i think you that's to me i wish that internet speed was associated with iq like we all can have access to the internet but if you're a dum-dum you get dial-up and if you're really smart, you can get Cat5 cable piped into your house. Because if you think that one person is responsible for what's happening, you're an idiot. I mean, again, you're trying to look at a complex problem through a pinhole. And, you know, the drawdown plan that they're executing was probably something that the Trump administration worked on. But the initial framework of that was probably put together by the Obama administration. And maybe the conversations were first had. In the Bush administration, when we first went over there, it's a 20-year involvement, multiple administrations. I mean, if we had left 10 years ago, this still would happen. If we were to leave 10 years from now, what's happening in Afghanistan still would happen. I just don't think that Afghanistan has ever, in the history of Afghanistan or whatever it was called previously, has been what the West is going to want it to be. And I don't think it will ever be in the future. It's well, hard to describe. How can we do this? I mean, when you, when you first went into Afghanistan, I mean, what was the first year you were there? 2002. So 2002, when we went in there, there was this idea that, hey, we were going to go get rid of bad guys and we were going to set them up and kind of give them the, at least the, you know, I mean, who who came in? It was Karzai was the, the president. Karzai was the first president. Yeah, that's what I was actually doing there in 2002 was the tail end of the security detail for him before it got turned over to the contractors. So you go in, I mean, that was like, there was a huge change from 01 to 02. Then all of a sudden we got into this like nation building where, and I remember mm -hmm. you and I even talking about that. You were like, you know, we went in with this clear defined mission. Then all of a sudden it pivoted. Next thing you know, they were dropping castles all over Afghanistan and putting different teams there in this idea of like nation building and creating some police force. So I wonder where all of a sudden this change in policy happened when it went to, hey, we're going to go in and get the bad guys, clear them out give them an opportunity to all of a sudden now we're going to give you nation building. I mean, is this the military industrial complex at work trying to figure out, uh, you know, wars of occupation, bilking the American taxpayers of billions of dollars? I mean, there might be an essence of that. I mean, I, again, I can't really talk to the people that pull the levers behind the scenes and necessarily where the money goes, but yeah, you know, 2001, right. Obviously I mean, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of September 11th next month. 
what I remember it being described as going into Afghanistan and, and what my role specifically there was in the early 2000s is we were looking for the people, right? So deny them the ability via terrain or safe haven to recruit, train, and then plan and execute tax attacks on the United States. So it was it was really clearly defined. We were there to try to make sure that another 9-11 didn't happen again and to go after the people that were responsible for it. Um, but Afghanistan's gnarly. So when it comes to, you know, talking about dropping down the castles or the FOBs, Ford operating bases, and it's such a large country and the differences in the terrain are so diverse that you really need to have staging areas and you need to have an understanding of what's going on locally because there's multiple provinces in Afghanistan. You know, there's everything from like Star Wars deserts to the Himalayas in the, you know, sometimes in the same province. And you need to have the ability to work with the locals because there's huge cultural and language differences just because you're from Afghanistan, like as a whole, people in the U.S. Be like, oh, yeah, they, they probably speak Afghani. I'm like, OK, you're a fucking retard. And, you know, there's people in the north will have a difficult time communicating with people in the south or the west or the east or a religious difference or a cultural difference. And they can spot people who are from out of the area from a distance just by looking at them and seeing the way that they are dressed. So dropping the, the castles was a good idea to it was a good idea to hold terrain and it became i don't know if you guys have ever heard of the ink blot theory when it comes to counterinsurgency but it's basically when we put a castle down think of it as a huge ink blot and the hope is that it will permeate and spread out the influence of the afghan government and then you put another ink blot somewhere else and eventually hopefully they will connect and you will overwhelm the entire country or area that you're trying to do with influence and a blanket of security so therefore, whatever government is going to be there is going to be able to, one, survive, and then two, thrive. Uh, and I think just like every other country that's gone into Afghanistan, the, the concept of doing that and the reality of doing that are two very, very different things. Um, I just had a guy uh, on a podcast, Wesley Morgan, he wrote a book called The Hardest Place, which was all about the Petch Valley up in uh, Kunar or Konar, depending on how people want to describe it. And you want to talk about uh, a futile effort where so much capital from physical perspective, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers spending years of their life there, uh, you know, the death, the injury and the destruction. And at the end of the day, they pushed in as hard as they could and backed themselves the way out, repeating operations, you know, three and four years later, landing literally in the same helicopter landing zones with the same result every single time. And at the end of the day, you know, they, they were not able to provide any security for that valley and they ended up and backing out of that valley completely. It's, uh, it's the same valley where Operation Red Wings happened. Uh, you know, it, it's where they think uh, bin Laden passed through on his way out of Tor Bora because it has very easy access to Pakistan. You could easily walk from there. But I mean, we're talking over a decade of sustained effort in combat with countless, well, not countless. I mean, I'm sure you can count the exact number of lives. And what did you accomplish at the end of that? The ink block theory failed, the drop in the castle theory failed. And as soon as the American forces left, it was a tide of Taliban and foreign fighters and they took over and our partner forces there became overwhelmed or they just switched their allegiance, which doesn't surprise anybody. I don't, I mean, I, I know a lot of vets obviously that served in Afghanistan. I've had a lot of conversations with them over the past few days. Not a single one has said, oh, I'm shocked by what's happening in Afghanistan. Not a single one. The only thing that they have said and that surprises me, too, is the velocity with which it actually happened. It's returning to the country that it was 
albeit much more uh, or much uh, much better equipped and armed. I think the Taliban is at their current state, the most uh, highly armed uh, that they have ever been due to what we left behind. And that's where to me, it's like me, I mean, the the execution of the withdrawal, like you're telling me that there's no way that we could have, maybe we need another six months, maybe we need another 10, or maybe we should have started this six months or 10 months before, but we couldn't have gotten all the equipment out of there. Like we we couldn't have put in process a place where the interpreters and the people who live there that did absolutely assist American forces and risked their lives. Like we couldn't have had all that paperwork done before we left. I got an idea. Let's leave the fucking embassy in Kabul. All right. Let's just go ahead and evacuate that thing first. And if it doesn't turn into a shit show, we'll go back. But how about we just plan on the country acting like the country has since the inception of the country. And we just, you know what I mean? We do it better. So that the execution of what's happening is just trash. Um, I think it shows it shows our ass to the world, but I don't know how far that plan has been in existence. I, I mean, I don't know how much to to put on the current administration. I mean, I think it's tough when the guy sitting in the seat probably thinks he's the Easter Bunny when he wakes up in the morning. You know, it's like it. But at the same time, there's no way that it is one person's fault. And I'm so tired of people to go back to your original point of this finger pointing. It's like I'm so tired of people. Like, oh, it's Biden's fault. Just shut the fuck up. You have well, no. It's like, politicized. I, I mean, yeah. Like, like if you, you know, it's everybody from, uh, you know, Ted Cruz to, you know, uh, Dan Crenshaw, and whatnot. Everybody yeah. is is using this as an opportunity. And I agree with you. I'm pretty sure Biden wakes up every morning and has no concept of where he is. They probably got to hook him up to a machine and pump him full of a, you know, a bunch of IVs and whatnot just to wheel him up to get him back out there another day. And unfortunately, there's a strange feeling that the person standing up there who is allegedly the president of the United States isn't the one making these decisions. And I think that's where we get into this thing quite, quite deep. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, though, too, like, like strip away the current administration. I mean, the role of the president, I would think at least, I mean, you don't have to actually be the smartest person in the room. Like the best thing a president could do would be to put together the most awesome team in the history of teams right like avengers assemble but it's like yeah. political avengers and i don't know what that looks like probably not a lot of capes probably some monocles some ascots i don't know but, but i mean isn't that what you want like uh you know the age old if you're the smartest man in the room go find another room i mean that, yeah. that was that was ronald reagan's deal uh, i might not be yeah. the sharpest dude but i'm gonna have the sharpest people around me to be able to provide me the best information in real time and well, yeah, I agree with you. And I think my point is that I don't know how often it is actually the president that makes, you know, in air quotes, a lot of the decisions. I mean, that's why there's the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, the pre it's it's interesting. People will reach out to me and, you know, they will, they often want to know about the difference between serving with a Republican president or a Democrat uh, president. And the reality is, I mean, maybe there'd be some budgetary issues, but people are under this misconception they like the bat phone rings at one of the SEAL teams. It's like, hello, Mr. President. Oh, yes. You want us to go do this? It's like the guy. I mean, I would love to ask any sitting president, like, how many SEAL teams are there? You know, which department of the military are the SEAL teams associated with? I mean, he'd probably be like, uh, the Marines? You know, I mean, like the point being, like, <laughs> what number on the phone up. do you have to hit to get to Debgru? Yeah. But and then that's the thing, like it's such a massive organization that funnels up and that there's layers of leadership that lead up to that. I think oftentimes people in those seats, you know, maybe they're making the decision, but they're making a decision between three or four policies that have been 
developed and thought through and then presented to them. So most of the legwork has been, you know what I mean? That's, that's what I would do if I was in that seat. So yeah, you might be the guy on TV or the person signing, like, you know, I guess they like do one letter of their name and then hand that pen off. You know what I mean? So there's all these fucking souvenirs when they sign stuff. So you might be that guy, but I don't know. I, I think it would be more presidential to maybe be a little bit more transparent and talk about where these plans come from in the process and not try to present yourself as, Hey, I'm the guy. I have all of the answers because that's just stupid. Like you said, if you're the smartest guy in the room or you think you are, you need to find a different room. Is the, I mean, I, I, I think what, what at least we're viewing, at least the way I viewed this is um, like you, man, like we should have got out there years ago. Is there, you know, could the exit strategy have been better planned. I mean, it felt very ad hoc, like, uh, you know, the fact that there's 40,000 Americans still there, the fact that we left. <laughs> I mean, think about the tanks, planes, armies, small ammunitions, rocket launchers, all the ordnance that was left for an army roughly the size of 300,000 people. So we spent 20 years, $88 billion building up the Afghan army, which they were ranging at about 300,000 troops who got overrun in 11 days. And all of that in all, I mean, all of that infrastructure just gets handed over yeah. And now we've effectively equipped, you know, I mean, the country we've been fighting for the last two decades that we've pointed to for terrorist attacks. I mean, now this has become, uh, you know, I guess ground zero, uh, you know, the fucking meeting place for all the bad people in the world to come. And they have the weapons and the, you know, ability to do it because they have the equipment. I mean, before, like you were telling me stories about these dudes making AKs out of, uh, you know, in the dirt in a hut somewhere. Now, all of a sudden, yeah, they have, I mean, they would, you know, they're, they're a part-time farmer by day, and then they'll go unbury their AK and walk around and do their Taliban duties. I mean, there's a difference between even the Taliban. I mean, it, it's different in the provinces. Like, there's the, the the white flag Taliban who are, like, legitimate. This is who they are and what they do. And then there's some of the guys who are getting paid to, I mean, literally, they do their farming stuff, and they get paid to, you know, unbury their AK and go and walk around a, a, a poppy field, you know, for a few hours in the afternoon, all underneath the same banner. I mean, the short answer to your question is yes, it could always be done better. I, I mean, and so if you go back 10 years, there would have been less of that equipment. There would have been less money spent. Um, so I think it would have probably been easier just from a logistical perspective, right? If you have 1 million pieces of stuff that you need to move and 10 years ago, you had 500,000, right? So you'd think, I mean, you know, basic math that that would be easier to do. But again, 10 years ago, what's happening in Afghanistan still would have happened now. And I think it's important for, because you see a lot of, uh, you see a lot of vets online right now are talking about how, you know, it, it was all for nothing. We wasted everything. And, you know, I feel like my service was all for nothing. And the reality is, and I think it's important for people who are feeling frustrated about it to realize it never was actually about Afghanistan. You know, we didn't, I didn't get sent to Afghanistan to save the Afghanistan or Afghani people from themselves. I was there to specifically target the individuals that had planned and trained and equipped for 9-11, deny them those safe havens. And we did that pretty effectively, but what we didn't do effectively was plan how the fuck we were going to get out of that country. Um, and again, I don't know a single vet that I served with who is surprised by what happened. Afghanistan, I just don't think it'll ever be what the West wants it to be. It's just, again, I just don't see, I, I don't think anybody can point to a point in their history where it has been. So 
remember I mean, those people have been there. I mean how long have they been at war I mean for thousands of years I mean, the I mean, Russians. Again, I'm not an expert on Afghanistan, but you go, yeah, you can go backwards to the Russians. There was an English influence there at some point in time. I mean, you can go all the way back to Genghis Khan. I mean, I forget the statistic, but it's, I think it's like 30% of people have a genetic tie to Genghis Khan, not even just in Afghanistan in general, but in you know, large portions of Asia, where he basically killed and fucked his way through the country. Yeah, they said in the uh, uh, Mongolian steppe that like 10% of the genetics. Uh, are still direct lineage, which means father, son, yeah. father, son to Genghis Khan. So it was probably him and his brothers. I mean, you know, he allegedly had, you know, 50 brothers or something. Just went through and impregnated everybody. Yeah. And the way they were able to do that is they basically killed every male that they came in contact with, which is not a foreign policy that the United States wants to get behind. So maybe that's why he was slightly more successful there than the United States has been, depending on whatever metric you use for success. But yeah, we could have done it better. I mean, it is tough to sit here and be like, okay, I spent a lot of years over there. Did it actually accomplish anything? And I mean, we haven't had another 9-11 or attack like it in the last 20 years. Those are the people that I was there to try to deny them the ability to do what they had done previously. And I think that's at the end of the day, you know, if you view what's happening in Afghanistan as a soldier who served there, and you think that you're somehow responsible for them going back to where they were before we were there, that's not the case. I mean, let's look, I mean, it's not a waste. Uh, you know, the actions you take from a foreign policy perspective, if you're gonna if you're gonna activate the Department of Defense and you're gonna go over and invade and occupy a country for two decades, there's gonna be a cost to it. But again, remember, it was not actually about rescuing Afghanistan. Um, they are going to have to stand or fall on their own. And I think that was at least understood from a boots on the ground level. Again, I was not at any of the tables talking about any of these plans, but from working with these partner forces, after about six minutes, you realize, okay, like when we leave, this is not sustainable. Yeah, we work with a lot of people and we've spoken to the athlete identity, like John's career is over, what's next? And I think it's important message that you're sharing, a soldier's identity is that, and they, I don't want them to fall into that trap of that was all for naught. Yeah, but I mean, isn't it easy? I mean, I, I, like, I think what we've uh, come in this country is that nobody's looking for nuance anymore. Everybody just wants to be polarized, Every, you know, and uh, it's easier to die on the sword. You know, I went over there, I thought we were doing this, and now they've done this. And it's like, um, Andy made the, probably the biggest home run point, and this is something um, that I brought up some individuals recently, which is uh, if you go fight a war, we need a clear defined version of what victory looks like. And if we went over there after 9-11 to get the bad guys and make sure this doesn't happen, then we go and we fucking smash them. And then if that's our definition of victory, then you do that and then you leave. Uh, then what, 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 what's crazy is I was digging in it, into it today to see all the different policy changes where we went from what Andy was talking about to this idea of nation building. And then now we have to bring Western democracy and freedom and all these other things to a country that's never had it and doesn't believe in it at their core values. So now we have to, you know, change the culture and there's this revolution of ideas and whatnot. And now we've somehow owed it to these people because we've implanted American seeds of, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And for a bunch of people that, you know, I mean, I believe that there's probably a, a you know, a large contingent of people that want that. Then there's a whole bunch of people that are like, why don't we go back to Sharif Law, you know, from, you know, six, you know, was it like 600 AD 
you know, when that came yeah. in. So, uh, like, it's such an interesting, interesting problem. And I just, I, like, I'd love to know where the policy changed and why we feel that, like, we can travel around the world and basically create little Americas everywhere. Like, we're the model for something. Yeah, I mean, the policy changes, again, I'm not an expert on all the policy, but I can tell you it definitely, there were at a, so like at a theater level, there's battle space commanders. So uh, Afghanistan was broke up into like uh, north, south, east, and west. And, you know, there was a commander for all of that. And you can imagine they had a bunch of flare pieces on their shoulders that were shiny. And it's uh, as... 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, it was very aggressive. It was very targeted. Go back in 2010, and somewhere between five and 10, it was much more about by, with, and through. And of course, you know, we've been there for almost 10 years, and the battle space commanders are trying to figure out, well, how the hell are we going to be able to do this? So, you know, go back in 2010, no more night raids. So take away your uh, night vision goggles and the advantages that you have there because we're trying not to offend the Afghan adult males by making an entrance into their house at nighttime, which is like the number one thing you can do is go into their house uninvited at night. Um, partner forces, you know, always having an Afghan face on what it is that we were doing. So, and so if you have the war fighters and then you have the, the doctrine makers, it's not an overnight switch, but whatever they were doing up at the policy level certainly trickled down into uh, a tactical level and it, and it shifted what we were doing on the ground. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, in all of the travels that I have done for the military, it was less about trying to make little Americas and it was more trying to defend or go after the people that are a direct threat to, in my opinion, at least what America stands for, because the ideologies of the people that I was looking for, they are the polar opposite of what I think the three of us, you know, believe this country is founded upon. Uh, I think the United States has proven over and over again that nation building we're not good at. I mean, the U.S. military is really good at breaking shit. We're not good at putting stuff back together. And, you know, you look at a country like Afghanistan, you know, what happened with the Russians when they stayed for a long time? Fucking not good. You know, well, what happened to the invading force or a country before that when they tried to stay too long? Not good. You know, it's well, like if you look at the at the way the Russians. So the Russians went in there with no gloves on. And like the level of brutality associated with the Russians, uh, like was fucking legendary. I, I was reading different accounts, and they were going through and being like, the Russians would just go through and be like, "Oh, you think that's brutal? Let me, uh, you know, I see this and hold my drink. I'm going to raise you." So I mean, the level of brutality the Russians had was like legendary. Uh, you know, all you have to do is go watch that Rambo movie where they talk about you know the, there's you know Rambo and the Russians and all that. I mean, dude, that stuff's legit. Um, and if that was what they were used to with their last invader when the United States comes in, and like you said, we hit them hard, and then all of a sudden there was this huge policy shift where, you know, now we're not allowed, you know, we're, we're taking away the weapons that have allowed us to necessarily get to this point. And um, yeah. that's, the, that's the interesting thing where I'm like, you know, like, why did the mission change? And more importantly, where was that pivot and why did we pivot? If, uh, like, I, like I said, as an American citizen, and I have no prior military experience, so I'm just talking about it from, a, like, a, an NFL fan sitting on a couch on Sunday watching, I think if, as an American person, uh, American citizen that pays taxes, if we're going to go fight a war, I want to know up front exactly what victory looks like, and I want to know mm -hmm. when we reach it, because now 
uh, you know, like, let's not keep pivoting this thing. And that's what I felt so many times when, you know, and, and I have a, a pretty good, you know, um, you know, information dealing with people like yourself and also, you know, other intelligent people that we you know, are plugged in with, that there was this big change where, hey, if this is what victory looked like, let's go do it. And then, you know what, let's come home and let this thing go. But I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was a feeling that uh, once, you know, once we reach what we thought was a victory, if we leave it, we're just leaving a hornet's nest that we're finding. Here we are. 20, now it's a 20 years later, better equipped hornet's nest. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all of that. And I think there's a difference between how Americans and a lot of the West, the rest of the world uh, view time. You know, we're talking about a 20 year involvement in Afghanistan. You talk to Afghanis and they're talking, you know, their version of time is it's generational. You know, it's they're holding grudges from three, three levels of their, you know, and a, somebody who had uh, an issue with their family three generations before and they still are holding holding that grudge, you know, for to the US, you know, for political administration sounds like a lot. One, you know, you talk to your average Afghani, they have no understanding of what the US political administration system is or how politics work. But you talk about like 20 years, like they're gonna laugh at you, you know, their ver their version of time. And fuck, I mean, everything to go with time, forgiveness and revenge. It's just it's so incredibly different. So for us, we look at a 20 year engagement as if it's this, this overwhelming, incredibly long thing. And to them, I mean, dude, it's a blink of an eye, you know, it's, it's, it, and viewing things like that, that disconnect, again, it, it speaks to the cultural differences and why I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand what's going on in that country and why it's going back to what it was before. So I just looked it up. The Russians were there 14 years, 78 through 92. Yeah. yeah. And they, so I mean, we're one yeah. and a half times as good as the Russians. I mean, basically, it's what that works down. You know, second place is first loser. Oh, my God. I mean, if you go through and you just do a basic <laughs> search on, like, the amount of people that have tried to occupy this place, uh, yeah. it's, I mean, it's mind-boggling. And, again, they view things generationally. I mean, the attention span of people in the United States is probably an Instagram post or maybe one political administration backwards. And it, it's just a different, and again, you're viewing a complex issue through a pinhole. Best of luck, you know? So what do you think the, uh, I mean, you know, I know you're not a pronosticator and you, have, you don't have a crystal ball, but where do we go from here? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the current administration isn't ready to tool up and go back and somehow right some wrong. I mean, you know, I mean, as soon as I saw the uh, helicopter land on the roof uh, for the embassy, I was like, oh man, this looks just like yeah. Vietnam. And then people were showing the pictures. Uh, I wonder where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, you know, the helicopter on the roof of the embassy, before I answer the question, to me, that speaks to what I said earlier. Like, we couldn't have had a better plan to maybe just proactively get all of this, you know what I mean? Like, and people say, oh, well, the enemy would have known what you were doing. It's like, yeah, I understand that. But maybe we could have, you know, absorbed a little bit more risk with that and gotten a lot of people out of there now before it becoming a crisis. I don't know. Maybe it's a better idea to make decisions before they become a crisis. As far as where do we go from here, oh, I think it's going to depend on. I don't have a good answer because I don't know necessarily what's going to what's going to happen in that country. I mean, what what are they going to do with all that stuff that we left behind? What is the country going to evolve into? I mean, the U.S. military after twenty years. I mean, I can tell you the the refinement and evolution of the U.S. military from two thousand and one to twenty twenty one 
it's really hard to describe. I mean, everything is different from even the people who are in the military. There are now people serving the military who were not alive on 9-11. Different generation of people, a different generation of electronics, of equipment, of body armor, of uniform, and of tactics. The tactics of 2021 are so different than 2001, um, you know, talking about the ability to strike people without even having a presence on the ground, you know, drone warfare, which I'm not necessarily an advocate for or against. I think it's a piece of a very complicated puzzle. Um, but I think, and I would hope that we have developed the ability to no longer need to have these hundred plus thousand forces go and occupy. Um, I really do think that the U.S. military has evolved to the point where we can do a lot more with less people with a lot of those uh, force multipliers, whether it be the equipment, you know, overhead assets or sensors, to even with the people they're wearing in the field right now. I mean, fuck the amount of smart technology that guys are wearing into the field. I never felt comfortable relying on a battery saving my life. Like if I had to operate right now, my backpack would be so heavy for all the goddamn batteries that I would have with me just in case my primary set failed. And then my secondary and tertiary, like I wouldn't even be able to move. I'd have like a hundred pound backpack of batteries. I'd be so terrified of these devices failing, but it allows you to do amazing stuff. So I would hope that we learn from our lessons in Afghanistan. And if, Let's say we identify an area where they are training um, and maybe what we were going there to do in 2001 and it's happening again. I, I would like to think that we have the ability to handle that uh, much more remotely and with a smaller force that doesn't require anything that would look like nation building. I think that's really the only way that we can go forward is to stop nation building. And again, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in, in foreign policy. I mean, because largely what I'm describing is you're putting your fingers into a leak in a dam in the hopes that the dam doesn't burst. Um, but I just don't want to see a repeat of what, what has happened for the last 20 years in Afghanistan. I would like to think that we are able to do that. Well, I mean, what, uh, I mean, the, uh, the other thing I was thinking, um, like you said, and you, you, dude, you actually articulated my point, like, what do they do now? Okay. So, uh, you know, they're riding on a high, uh, you know, the U S is, you know, negotiating. I just saw China came out and recognized the Taliban as the official mm -hmm. government of, uh, Afghanistan. I mean, so you're having this issue. Do all of a sudden those people become world leaders? Do they go into the UN? Do they all of a sudden, uh, like, I'm just wondering, like, what is the evolution? How do they go back and build? And more importantly, what does that look like in a year, five years, 10 years from now? Because uh, I don't, I mean, like, I have no idea, like, who those individuals are. And more importantly, now we've basically given them this, uh, this military force, what are they going to do with it? I mean, they don't have pilots, but yet they have planes. They don't have anybody who's necessarily trained in any of this equipment, so they're going to just figure it the fuck out on the run. Well, they won't need to figure it out on the run. There's more than enough people or countries or organizations that would be happy to go there and do the research and fly mobile training teams, like just like we did. You know, it's uh, China being a good example. Trust me, I'm sure they have no problem sending a mobile training team and maybe even their own pilots to fly the helicopters or tanks or you know whatever it may be. Not that tanks fly, obviously, but there are ways that, uh, you know, much like we have supported other countries throughout our history through proxy to include in Afghanistan, right? When we were supporting the, the freedom fighters that we called them in the time, you know, by proxy against the Russians, you know, like, I'm curious, where did they get those stinger missiles from? I don't know. Well, if only the internet had the answer to those questions, right? So instead of doing it directly, what do we do? We can train people. Maybe we fly them to our country and we would teach them, which is what happened with a lot of the, uh, the Afghani pilots of which I'm 
pretty sure there are not that many. I only know of one time ever in the history of the Afghani Air Force, which I use that term extremely lightly, that there was ever actually a, uh, a an Afghan pilot that dropped ordnance. And I think there was actually a U.S. pilot in the aircraft with him, but the Afghan was at the controls. Point being, though, that shit can all be outsourced by organizations that want to learn more about U.S. tech support or prop up uh, the new Afghani government. So although your average, uh, you know, Taliban fighter um, may be slightly confused about what end of an M4 goes bang, and I'd be more than happy for them to be looking down the barrel when they test that. Uh, there are people out there um, who can bridge the gap in knowledge for them. So bad actors finding other bad actors. Well, I mean, you got to turn, you got to, you got to define the term bad because don't think that the U.S. isn't doing exactly the same thing all oh. throughout the globe. Well, I mean, it was, uh, I think it was Van Halen in the 80s, uh, you know, that had the, um, uh, it was like the 80s and the 90s, they had that video. And the, one of the comments was, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. does things that we think only other countries do. And I remember yeah. as a kid seeing that, and that was a pretty good indication that, uh, you know, the U.S. acts in such a way that, you know, if we were viewing it as another country, we would, you know, probably go in there and decide to do some nation building. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of the things that the United States will point their finger at other countries for their actions. If you dig deep enough, you can find plenty of examples of us doing the same thing. And again, I think there is a difference when it comes to motivation and intent and ideology. Um, and we certainly can talk about where our motivations come from and why we would be doing those things. But, you know, there's always uh, there's always another side of a coin when it comes to how people are viewing you. I'm not trying to justify or defend uh, any nations to include the United States uh, in their actions, because I, I would think that the actions should be able to stand for themselves and stand scrutiny. But it's important to realize that. And, and I don't know if a lot of people take the time to realize that they will. It's easy to point your finger at somebody else and say, well, I cannot believe that this country would do this. It's like, yeah, you know, it's, you know, one finger out, three fingers pointing back back at you. You know, it's, you'll oftentimes be surprised if you do a little research on our country as to the actions that they have taken as well. And again, I believe in what this country stands for. I'm not trying to say that those have been, in my mind, unjust or for, a, you know, illicit intent. It's just important, I think, to realize that it's far more complex. Like you said, it's much more nuanced, which is apparently a four-letter word in 2021. <laughs> uh, is that because, um, and I was thinking on this, I mean, is it because, like you said, people's attention spans are so limited based upon all this access to technology that it's impossible to look past anything that is just a, you know, a hair underneath the surface? So, I mean, to have a nuanced conversation requires us to go into depth, but yet with the way the news cycle works and the amount of information that's coming in and out, I mean, is there even an opportunity to have nuanced discussions? I like to believe we can, but. I think you can, but it depends on the person. Um like take take you for example. Uh, when I first met you, I mean, let's just say it was obvious that you weren't a ballerina for a living, <laughs> right? And if you were to go to a football game and you were to ask somebody like about one of the linemen, who I mean, what's fucking average weight for a lineman? Two seventy? Or are uh, you like like three hundred and twenty pounds probably? Okay, I was a so I was a smaller athletic guy. Yeah, so at two seventy, you were the runt of the litter on the offensive line but if you would canvas a bunch of people they'd probably say oh god i bet you those guys are just the dumbest 
big, you know, muscle heads. You know what I mean? Like, like that's you. You exist to knock somebody else's fucking helmet off with your tape fingers, and they think that'd be the level of it. And then you get to know you. It's like, oh yeah, you actually have two degrees. One of them in fucking rhetoric, which I still don't know what that means. I think it means you can't spell for shit on texting because you make constant errors when you text me in spelling. And I love sending them back to you because I don't have a degree in shit. But the point being, so you have a degree so, in fucking spell check. That's about all you got, huh? I thank God my iPhone has that little red line that goes underneath when it's like to her, to he, oh the, yeah, <laughs> really, to, to really Today, helps junior. me. Yeah, but so people might not think you'd be able to have a nuanced conversation, but you and I have had some incredibly deep, like hours long conversations on a variety of topics. And I actually, it's easy to say people's attention spans are short, or it's easy to say people are too stupid. And I actually think most people are smarter than a lot of others will give them credit for. I think it's more an issue of that. There is so much information that people are bombarded with it and they may not have the time to actually develop a a deeper understanding. So they don't want to have a nuanced conversation because if you do, like if you and I sit down and we have a, a multiple hour conversation in the first five minutes, you're going to get past what you learned on a meme, which is where I think a lot of people are getting their news, right? So you're stripped through that. And then you really start getting to, well, why do I feel this way? Where did I develop this feeling? Why do I believe it at the depth that I do? And if you're so bombarded with information and you can really only remember like the, the, the talking point that's constantly being pushed at you, the last thing that you want to do is have a nuanced conversation. Cause you don't have anything, you don't have anything after that meme, uh, which is, I mean, obviously that's a shitty example, but I've watched people use memes as the basics for their belief system. And don't get me wrong. I love a good meme. That shit cracks me up. Um, I wish I could make them. I don't know how to make it. I'm sure there's an app that you could, none of mine would be socially acceptable. So they probably wouldn't do that well. But when you don't have a depth and breadth of knowledge and understanding, because you're so bombarded with so much information. And at this point in time, like, where do you go? Where do you two guys go? Give me the name of a, a reputable news source or outlet of information that is above reproach. Oh man. Um, I don't think there is. So what I do is I try to, uh, the BBC Algiers and then, um, I'll you, I, I get the morning report from the New York times and then I'll read um, some other more kind of right-winging stuff. So I feel like there's uh, some net or some global news that you have to plug into. You got to go yeah. as far to the left as possible, and then you got to go not too far on the right, but just far enough on the right. And then you got to try to figure it out because I'll tell you, the New York Times batshit crazy. I get their morning dump every morning. I read through it at like five a.m., and it's pretty interesting to see how things are spun. Then, well, that's um, my point. Like yeah. people don't even know at this, like people literally don't even know where, like, well, I saw this, but how do I know it's right? And when I saw this and it's well, this is a disinformation campaign. I mean, the, you know, the goal of a disinformation campaign is to create so much, uh, you know, like to muddy the water to the point where everything you read, you're either polarized or you're unsure of. I mean, so there's like there's no way, no longer for you to look and say, okay, what's accurate? Am I being told the truth? And I think that unless you start kind of, and I know this sucks. I mean, you almost got to like put up box sides. Like, hey, I'm going to go on this side. I'm going to go on this side. And I'm going to look at some other stuff, and I'm going to figure out truth is somewhere in the middle, which is usually what happens with most of the world. 
And don't forget that that entire ecosystem that you were describing, whether it's the far left, the far right, and everything in between, it's all based on ad revenue. So click this headline. You're like, God damn, some of those headlines are good. Like I click on that shit and then the ad pops up and it's like, no, I don't want to know that. I just want to know what's happening with Britney Spears and her conservatorship. Like what's this ad about? Uh, I just saw a whole thing that Britney was buying Bitcoin to try to hide her, her perch. I mean like Bitcoin. It's, it's so fucking ridiculous. Uh, but um, when we were out in California, you know, the, uh, we yeah, but you know what on, I mean? Like the whole, yeah, the whole pool, it's like, Everybody's pissing into the pool and pointing fingers at the other person saying like, no, it's not me. I'm not peeing in this. But like, dude, your dick's in your hand and I physically see it coming out. Like, can we, and again, it's just a nuanced conversation I think begins with the acknowledgement that all of these information sources, they all have something to gain as well. And a lot of them now are pandering directly to a certain uh, side of the political aisle. Uh, it's just, I think it, it starts with that. And, and the number of conversations I've had with people who are unwilling to even agree to that point. Mm. I mean, can you have a nuanced conversation when somebody is unwilling to even discuss, like, if you want to play a game, right. To use a shitty analogy, like if we want to play chess, we need to agree. I can't use the checkers pieces and John gets to use the chess ones. I mean, I guess we could, if we labeled them, but we can't play them on a cribbage board. You know, we have to have at least some place where we can say, hey, this is where we are. Like, let's start the conversation from here. And if you don't have that, then I think it just it's just people yelling at each other, which would aptly describe what I see in this country right now. Well, so you got, Jeff, you got Jeff Bezos, who is by far the biggest benefactor from the lockdowns and all this COVID deal. I mean, the guy wrote half of his, uh, you know, net worth to his wife and then basically doubled it from there. Um, and also the owner of the Washington Post. So, I mean, you're telling me that there isn't some vested interest in pushing out information that promotes this type of information. I mean, uh, you know, and then you get people be like, no, 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 there's, you know, uh, there's checks and balances. They have to be honest. And I'm like, they don't. I mean, yeah. these are describe for me these checks and balances that you're relying upon. Yeah. They're, I mean, are they fact checkers? Because the fact checkers are totally cooked. I mean, it's uh, like it's a situation where. Every, I, I believe that you everything you read, you have to go into with like, seems like bullshit, and then have them, you know, and then be able to go through. I think you just have to call everything bullshit. My wife gets mad at me. She's like, why do you think everything's a lie? I'm like, well, if everything's a lie, then I can work backwards and I have a framework to work from. Then I can look for spots of truth. If you believe everything, then how the fuck are you ever going to spot the deceptions? I think being uh, an objective and critical person when it comes to information presented to you is a much better way to go through life. I would rather have people who are questioning everything, not like tinfoil hat, like, hey, like, I don't believe you because you say the earth is round. You mean Rob you Wolf? Know, like, <laughs> bro, <laughs> I get to see him. I get to see him often now. He is awesome. I do jujitsu with him like three days a week. He absolutely hates best. it. Yeah, he absolutely hates it. I punish him at every opportunity that I can. Because he's so little? Small. Just in general, it, it irritates me how smart he is. We'll have a conversation. I'm like, Rob, dude, two syllable words maximum and don't talk to me about fucking laboratory research you know i'm a moron <laughs> it's it's uh yeah i mean why not question everything isn't that kind of what the best minds in the history of human beings have done yeah. question what was considered to be the status quo and again you don't have to be a fucking conspiracy theorist but you also don't have to believe every meme so how do you balance that I mean, um, I just personally like to think everything's bullshit. Uh, everything I read, I kind of look, I go into it. And I'm like, uh, 
I don't believe this is true until they make a, a um, intelligent enough argument for me to be like, uh, okay, I can conceptualize this. But a big part of this is, um, you know, and I, it, it kind of reminds me of like boxing a little bit, where if you want to overwhelm an appoint, uh, opponent, and you'll see this too in jujitsu, just keep hitting them in the face over and over again. If you just fucking barrage them in the face, eventually people will get utterly confused because they can't see and they can't deal anything. I'm sure like in jujitsu, if you just lay on the dude's face long enough, you know, cut off his windpipe and just fucking stay on his face, then there's a good chance he's just going to give up. And I think that's where we're at. We're just getting hit all the time with so much information. That's actually what I try to do to Rob. I just try, I mean, gravity is awesome when you weigh more than the person that you're laying on. So I will try to smother him with my gi or other pieces of clothing until he just wants to give up on life. Uh, but yeah, I, so if somebody's coming at you with that barrage, I mean, my answer to that is take as much time as you possibly you can to think through it. I mean, with an overwhelming amount of information for me, the, the velocity of responding to things specifically online, there's no real benefit there, right? So maybe instead of responding as quickly as you can, just take a few moments, maybe it's a minute or two. I just try to like when I'm presented with something new, instead, even if it's like it grates against who I am, and instead of smashing back a response that I would consider to be witty, I will sit back and actually I will think attest about- to this. I will attest to this, yeah. that you're usually your first response is uh, witty and fucking deeply cutting. <laughs> well, because you have to think about what it is that would hurt the individual the most on the other side of that response. It's very no, true. I, but you got to take you got to take the time. And I try to process. And again, so I have, a you know, you and I have a little bit more of a benefit when it comes to the amount of time that we've been on planet Earth. You're a well-traveled person. You're an educated person. You've been to a variety of different places with socioeconomic differences um, so that for me, when I take the time to think through information that is presented to me, much as I'm sure it's the same for you, you have a better filter that you can work it through. What would be tough, can you imagine trying to navigate this world, but you and I are in our late teens and access to all this information, but not having access to that amount of, of context that you can filter that stuff through? I mean, like, fuck, that would, I don't even know, how would you, right? Yeah. Because now, I mean, I hear stuff and I see stuff. And it's the exact opposite of what I personally have physically experienced in my life. And I can almost instantaneously dismiss it, regardless of how good they want to present their argument. I'm like, no, that's obviously false. Uh, a great example of that would be the argument for socialism and communism. How mm. about go fuck yourself, right? Like, I don't need this conceptual fucking academic view of socialism and, co and communism. That may sound great when you're 16 through 20 or whatever age this seems to be getting its hooks in people come back to me when you're fucking 40 and you've tried to put together a business and you've paid taxes for a little bit and you've tried to buy a house. And it's like, it's amazing how those things shift as you go on and you have more experience. So well, the, how do you uh, do that when you're 17? I don't know. Well, they, they also don't have an understanding of, of history. I mean, um, you know, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, which is actually, yeah one of the primary functions for socialism and communism is erasing all of your history so that they don't know that, no, because it's never been done like this. It's never been done benevolent. But if you look, every time this it's has been It's never attempted, been executed properly. Yes, never because we didn't do properly. it. It's never been done benevolent. And the problem <laughs> is, if like, for example, if uh, I moved to Montana and we lived in like a little cul-de-sac and there was three families, uh, you know, you, me and Rob and our families, and uh, we had kind of a socialist He would be setup. our butler. 
I've already figured this out. Rob is our butler. Perfect. He, uh, uh, but you can do it as long as you have accountability to the group and the individual. Knock on the door. Hey, dude, I thought you said you were going to mow the lawn. Fucking mow the lawn. This is part of the group or you don't eat. Okay, cool. Right? This is our agreed upon socialist little commune. The problem is when you get into millions of people, you have a whole bunch of people that don't know the other people. And they just shut the door. And like, I mean, you look, you got to murder a ton of people. I mean, look at the Bolshevik revolution. I mean, look at the famine. They went and executed everybody that owned land. I mean, look at the Russians. Look at every time this has been attempted. It usually ends up in a fucking massive bloodbath. And a whole bunch of people where you have like a small amount of haves and a whole bunch of have-nots. So I I sometimes wonder if uh, these people that are espouting this socialist communism thing are just thinking, I'm trying to get in in early. Because if you get in early on this revolution, then you get to the top. And then once you're at the top, then you can fuck all these other people. So that's a, every time I hear this bullshit, I'm like, I think they're just trying to get in early. They're trying to get in on Bitcoin at like 100 bucks. Maybe. But then they're going to get dragged through the streets one of these days when those the have-nots finally have had enough of it. And they go to where the haves are and they fucking drag them out of their house and uh, finger paint with their blood. Which, I mean, hey, do what you want. Life's about the uh, the choices that you make. Choose wisely. Uh, is I mean, is there any hope? I mean, th- this is another one. I mean, um, like I, I gave I like, up hope a long time ago. You know me well, better than that. Yeah, I mean, but think about this, right? Like, uh, uh, I think, and you you brought it up eloquently. Um, we were raised in a time when uh, you know, if you wanted to know what your buddy was doing, you had to call him on the phone or ride your ho- bike over to your house. Uh, if you said, "Hey, I'm going to be there at eight o'clock," you had to show up at eight o'clock because there was no cell phone, no texting, nothing. Uh, you had to go home and check your message machine. And, you know, like you get home at the end of the day and you're like, oh, fuck. Uh, you know, as you're checking your messages. And I think there was some accountability. Uh, you know, your information came in very, very small ways. I mean, it was either the news uh, you turned on, you read the newspaper or whatnot and actually read, or you conversed with people. Now there's so much information coming at these kids. I'm wondering, like, how do you limit it? Or more importantly, how do they survive? I don't Maybe know. Don't. I don't have a great answer. I mean, it. I watch my. I have an 18 year old now, a 16 year old, and a 13 year old, and I watch, I watch the relationship that they have with their devices and the information and where they choose to get it from. And I mean, the approach that I take with my kids is to try to, you know, if they, if they seem to be passionate about something or motivated about something that they saw online, my my approach is to get them to put the device down and we just have an an open and honest conversation about it. And I'm not afraid to tell my kids that I don't know, especially if it's an issue that is more in line with something that they may be more passionate about than I am. But I try to pull them off the device. And then, I mean, my favorite question to ask my kids is why, you know, why do you feel that way? You know, because when people ask me questions like why I generally will have to sit and think and gauge the depth of my belief and where it came from. And I think it's a really powerful exercise and, and it slows people down. You know, I mean, maybe that's the initial step against, you know, dealing with that barrage of information coming at you is, to create a space where you have a little bit more time where you can ask yourself those questions. Why or ask other people the questions? Why? Because I mean, it's not like some dirty four letter word. If I ask my like, John, well, why do you feel that way? I guarantee you like on any, t- on any subject, he can give me an answer as to why. And if not in the moment, you'll eventually give it to me. And I think that's powerful because then you'll have a deeper understanding of where, where you're coming from and why you feel the way that you do. And I don't know. I think that's well, where we need to uh, head I back mean, towards. My feeling is, um, and I, you know, people hit me all the time with stuff, and a lot of times I don't know, and I have no problem telling people I don't know. 
Uh, that's one thing I've always appreciated about Jordan Peterson uh, is whenever he gives a response, he's thought through it to such a depth. And the people ask oh, yeah. him something that he hasn't thought through, he says to him, I haven't thought through this enough. I won't be able to answer it intelligently to the degree at which uh, you're going to look for in this. So, you know, hit me later. And I think that's an intelligent thing where you don't have to be an expert in everything. But we have a situation now where every single person that has access to a device and a meme is now an expert. I saw a really funny one the other day where a guy was like, you know, last week I was a uh, uh, expert in uh, virology and, uh, you know, infectious diseases. This week I'm an expert on Afghanistan. And it's, you know, the old man with a cup of coffee. And it's true. I mean, the amount of yeah. information uh, getting pushed out with vaccines and whatnot from people that have no fucking concept of any of this stuff, you know, uh, you know, gain of function and all that. I'm like, Jesus Christ, uh, it is unbelievable. Now everybody's an expert in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, you brought it up best where it's like, dude, there's what two Republicans, two Democrats policy, you know, million, you know, uh, thousands of non-elected bureaucrats making decisions with our tax dollars that we, you know, that we'll never, we'll never see and we'll never hear, uh, hold accountable. And so it's almost a, an impossible decision. And I guess, you know, all we were hoping for was just a little bit of perspective for people in a time where there is anything but. There you go. Just because you have information doesn't make you an expert. It's important for people to realize and remember. Cool. Well, dude. Cool. All right, gents. No problem, amigo. Be good. Thanks. Andy Stone. Yep, Thanks, Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!